0: Welcome to FedSpeak, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Pedro da Costa, and I'm honored to welcome Adam Posen to the podcast. Adam is a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, and the current president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, where he and his colleagues produce lots of high-quality research on macro, trade, and more. As the name of the institute implies, you and your colleagues take a broad global perspective on the economy, and I definitely want to draw on that during our conversation. But of course, this is FedSpeak, so I'm going to start with last week's red-hot inflation reading. How bad is the U.S. inflation problem at this stage, in your view, and how do you expect consumer prices to behave for the remainder of the year?
1: The situation is worse than even some of us who were forecasting a year or a year and a half ago that we'd have inflation but, Um When you look at what's going on now, it's... Inflation has spread through the core. It's not just goods. It's not just used cars. It's throughout. Um, I think part of it is obviously the energy and food shocks going around the world because of Russia's barbaric invasion of Ukraine. But given that we already had inflation momentum, some worries about inflation, some wage inflation in the U.S., that made it so it's even higher it's, it's, it's more than the sum of the parts, unfortunately. How bad is it going to get? I think people, myself included, were expecting inflation to peak uh, in the U.S. Core inflation to peak in the U.S., meaning not driven by energy, in around now or in the next couple of months, and that's looking less likely. Uh, I still think it's a little better than 50%. Uh, that the Fed will be able to engineer a so-called soft landing, in which case they would be raising rates through into second quarter of next year um, and stop around 4%. Um, But I think increasingly, unfortunately, people like Larry Summers and my colleague Olivier Blanchard are right. It's not unfortunate they're right, but it's unfortunate because what they've been saying is you're going to need a real Volcker-like recession, you're going to need interest rates to be positive in real terms, uh, net of inflation, to really get it under control. And if they are right, then we're looking at rates continuing to rise on the Fed end through most of 2023.
0: So let's split that up into two parts. First of all, in the near term, how aggressive could they get? Of course, they'd, they'd signaled 50 basis points for a couple of meetings, but now the market's already getting ahead of them and, and potentially pricing in 75. And then if the Summers Blanchard case is correct, what are we talking about in terms of a terminal rate?
1: On the first thing, good way to split it up. On the first point, I still think there's no argument for them to go 75, even if a couple ambitious uh, members of the committee want to say it publicly. Uh, I expect that the most this one data point does is make it more likely that will have three meetings of 50 in a row rather than two followed by a couple 25s. Um, I think the path between now and February 2023 is basically baked in. The only thing that I think would cause them to accelerate beyond mostly 50s and some 25s at every meeting between now and then would be a huge spike in labor market conditions that things looked even tighter. But the fine-grained data suggests that we are seeing a little bit of weakening in the labor market and wage, so I doubt that will be necessary. In terms of the Blanchard Summers scenario, which, again, I'm still hoping is not the case, but looks increasingly likely like it may be, um, you're talking a terminal rate, probably in excess of five, and it would depend, frankly, on how much inflation momentum you have. Um, but I I would see us looking at at least five, perhaps 5.5 for a terminal rate, as opposed to
0: 3.75
1: or four in the better scenario.
0: Yeah, that's that's quite a bit of tightening. So one of the reasons people are worried about a US recession, you, you suggested a soft landing is still a possibility, but one of the worries is not just the Fed tightening itself, but also the global outlook and how it's kind of downshifted lately. Uh, I'm wondering how you're seeing international factors affecting the U.S. The slowdown in China, Europe's proximity to to the war, and uh, and the UK's own inflation problems, which, as you've pointed out, have uh, have very peculiar uh, details.
1: Yeah, as you well know, Pedro, um, even those of us at the Peterson Institute for International Economics don't like to exaggerate the direct impact of international factors on the U.S. The U.S. is more closed than most other big or high-income economies. The U.S. is bigger than anybody else. It matters, but the feedback from the U.S. on China or the U.K. or Europe is much bigger than the other direction. So the other point to be made is that China is, in my view, bottoming out, Um, that the... Again, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID. We don't know how their lockdowns are going to go, but the worst-case scenarios of recession in China and of supply chain disruptions coming out of China seem to be abating. Uh, it's very hard to tell because, frankly, they're not providing as much information as they did even a few years ago. But our team at Peterson thinks that there's downside risk, but you know, China will grow three plus percent this year, which is a recession essentially for them, but not a disaster for the world. The European situation is more mixed. Um, As I and Jason Furman and others have argued, the inflation in Europe, uh, especially the euro area, seems to be much more about the direct energy and food effects of the Russian invasion and not about overheating economy the way it has been in the US. Um, and so we're more confident that if the ECB, the European Central Bank can hold its nerve and not do too much, this will subside. Um, also, we've got a world, the main effect on the US here though is, we have a world where a lot of people are putting more and more money into the dollar and out of these other currencies. and that's essentially right. It's equilibrating. It's it's stabilizing when the U.S. is growing faster and is having more interest rate hikes. That's the way it should work, but that's going to continue to put some distortions or pressures on the U.S. economy.
0: And what about Britain? Uh, you know, that's where you were a policymaker, and 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 they've had Brexit, which has of course exacerbated the labor shortage situation. Uh, how do you expect? I'll, I'll put it the same way that I asked you about the Fed, how, how, how do you expect rates to go there and how do you expect the MPC to behave? I, I'm
1: very glum about the British situation. Um, Brexit, with a couple notable exceptions, has worked out essentially as I and other mainstream economists forecast. You mentioned labor supply shortages um, and that has had repercussions in agriculture and the health sector and hospitality and causing inflation and slowdowns. Uh, but also direct trade effects, uh, not being able to get access to a variety of things, not being able to export higher costs, lower purchasing power. And so as Governor Bailey of the Bank of England put it when I interviewed him at Peterson last month, or I guess six weeks ago, um, you know, the UK, in a sense, is the worst of both worlds. They've got a US-looking labor market for their own idiosyncratic reasons, but they didn't have all the fiscal support that the US did. They were more like Europe. And so that to me is consistent with a world in which the UK is partway back to the 1970s. I won't say back to emerging market status, that's too strong, but expectations are less anchored. Um, Inflation transmission is amplified in a world where there's Brexit. So my fear and my strong expectation is that Great Britain is going to have to go through a real recession, irrespective of what happens in the US or China, that they're going to have to raise rates another 300 basis points plus from here. Um, now, the Bank of England's MPC has been indicating they don't think they need to go that far. Uh, and the debate seems to be about how fast they need to go another say 50 or 100 points from here uh, I, I i hope they're right but i doubt it's going to be enough
0: and then maybe lastly I, if i could ask you about japan i know you pay close attention to japan and the BOG, of course is one of the few global central banks that's still trying to ease policy and maintaining its yield curve control policy and the yen has been a lot of, under a lot of pressure as a result. Jim O'Neill from Goldman last week said he sees the growing risk of another Asian financial crisis as a result of this. Uh, How do you assess the situation first in Japan and in the region more broadly?
1: I I think calls about an Asian financial crisis are wildly misplaced. Um, This is a very different set of economic circumstances for Japan and for other countries in the region compared to 1998. There are countries around the world that are having trouble and we will get into Credit market problems and interest rate problems because of Fed tightening combined with COVID, but it's mostly the developing countries. It's mostly countries in the Middle East, North Africa, or Sub Saharan Africa. It's, it's some parts of Central Asia, and some parts of Central America. Asia, including especially East Asia, uh, is actually in pretty good shape. They don't have the kinds of debts or the kinds of real estate overvaluations that were there in 1997, 98. They haven't had the major capital county inflows that were there in 97, 98. So sorry to beat a horse to death, but I, I just don't see that as the risk. When we look at Japan, what there's several things to me that are interesting about Japan um, and in a sort of <laughs> calm way. Um, two, two I'd highlight. First is we've seen massive movements in the yen, right? So as you point out, but also initially in 2012. 13, the yen is a, is a huge way down from what it was, and the amount of inflation we've seen in Japan has been negligible until very recently, and core inflation remains weak, and so that tells you something is wrong with our models uh, that suggest that imported inflation or exchange rate pass of inflation is a powerful thing, and it's worth a lot of thought, and I haven't figured it out yet, and I hope others will. You know, what, it, what is it about Japan or is this true for the U.S. and true for China that you're just not going to get that much inflation change when the currency goes? The second thing that's really interesting to me about Japan is that they've been growing pretty well. On their per, well you and I have talked about this in the past. Their per capita growth rate is as good or better than any of the other G70 cons, including the U.S., um, for a long time now. Uh, and they've done good things on the labor market front to get more women involved and, and work. And so it's very interesting that they've been unable to get inflation up despite having relatively solid growth. Um, so this, again, leads into interesting questions for the U.S. and other major economies is, now that is, is this inflation bout we're going through, which will last the next year or two, frankly, going to keep us out of ever falling back into sort of secular stagnation, as Summers rightly called it, and below near zero inflation of Japan, or is it going to persist? Um, I'm still in the camp that I think two years from now, inflation will be back below 3% in the US, well below maybe, and uh, we're going to have to worry. But I think there are a lot of people out there who think that this inflation bout is going to get us out of that. And if it does, then they, we have an interesting question: why it didn't work for Japan?
0: Absolutely, and of course, the stagflation—I mean, the uh, secular stagnation problem—is one that seems like a luxury that Powell would rather have right now than than the scenario he's he's currently facing. Oh, it's a
1: good observation, and and it goes with what we were just talking about with the per capita growth rate. I mean, I was one of the many people who were wrong. We thought you end up with near zero inflation or deflation, very bad things would happen and the deflation would accelerate. And actually, that hasn't been the case in Japan, um, or for that matter, some parts of Europe. Uh, So it may well be that it's a better problem to have.
0: We we misunderstood. And do you expect any uh, currency intervention in Japan at this point? I can't completely rule
1: it out, but I think it's quite unlikely. Um, I, I think... Between now and when Governor Kuroda, who's been in office since spring of 2013, until he leaves office March, April of 23, I I really doubt there will be much change in policy of any kind. Um, I also think that the government of Japan, which of course controls the intervention, not the Bank of Japan, um, has recognized for now well over a decade Um, that in fact it's going on 20 years really, that they did massive interventions already in the early 2000s and it didn't help on inflation and they had to spend enormous amounts to get any traction. And then there's a G20 agreement, which Japan has really G7 plus China, which Japan has abided by um, not to unilaterally intervene without coordinating with your partners. So I strongly doubt it but, you know, the yen is at levels we haven't seen for a very long time. Uh, it, could, it could eventually lead to intervention, but if it's just intervention and monetary policy doesn't change, I don't think it's going to matter very much anyway.
0: All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. That was Adam Posen, president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics and former member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. Thanks, Adam. Thank you very much,
1: Pedro.